Imagine getting in a hot, stuffy car in the summer. You know how it cools off much faster when you roll down the windows first to get the hot air out? Well, that's exactly how an Easy Breathe basement ventilation system works. Removing all the musty, damp, stagnant air and replacing it with fresher, cleaner, drier air. Take charge of your air with Easy Breathe ventilation and get $250 off today. Ask about DIY kits. Visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com or call 866-822-7328. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Up next, The Truth with Lisa Booth, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. For 18 months now, the media and public health officials have been pushing fear, not facts about COVID. And they're still doing it with no signs of stopping. But today, I get you the truth, because this is The Truth with Lisa Booth. Welcome back to The Truth with Lisa Booth. I've got a truly can't-miss show for you guys this week. My guest is Dr. Martin Kuldorf, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Kuldorf is also a biostatistician and an epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Try saying that five times fast. His expertise is in detecting and monitoring infectious disease outbreaks, and he's an international expert in vaccine safety evaluations. He's also an author of the Great Barrington Declaration. So in other words, we have the perfect person here to talk about all things COVID and vaccines. So obviously, one of the reasons I wanted to have him on the show is because he's brilliant. But even more importantly, he's honest and he's brave. He has rejected the mindless groupthink of his colleagues, even risking professional blowback and censorship to tell the public the truth. People like him are the very reason this podcast exists and why I'm so passionate about it. My mission is to fight through the lies the media tells you and to get you the truth. I give you my word that this interview will put facts over fear and science over politics. Doctor, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You've really been a voice of reason and all the madness of COVID over the past few months. You are one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, You've been advocating for common sense, which is something that we've desperately been needed. So uh, before we get started, I just want to thank you for everything you've done over the past few months. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate that. Doctor, so the the very reason I have this podcast and I was pushing so hard for it was at the very beginning of COVID, 
There were voices like Dr. Ian Edes of Stanford warning us in stat news of March of 2020 that we were making terrible policy decisions based off of terrible data, but nobody was listening. And most of the voices that were featured were people pushing lockdowns and things of that nature. I worry again with a response to the Delta variant that we are going down that same path, that same path of putting fear over facts, of putting politics over science. Are we being rational in our response to the Delta variant? Well, I think you're correct. And uh, when the pandemic started as a public health scientist, I was absolutely stunned because uh, basic principles of public health was just thrown out the window. Uh, and one of them was in a public health emergency, you don't uh, try to scare people. You don't use fear as a public health tool. You use uh, accurate facts and you explain things and uh, um, uh, make sure that uh, uh, people take the necessary actions uh, to deal with the pandemic. But you don't uh, try to build up fear, which uh, they have been doing and uh, in some places deliberately. And that goes against one of the basic principles of public health. Well, you're right. And I feel like there's been a lack of nuance and context that has been out there about COVID as well and, and really treating people as if they're children and they can't hear the truth. When in reality, I think there'd be less skepticism to things like the vaccines if people were just honest about it all, honest about the risks, honest about the benefits. But we really haven't gotten that. Uh, but before we get into vaccines, I want to start with the Delta variant. You know, what what do people need to know about the Delta variant? Uh, well, it's not a game changer. Uh, so when you have a virus, it always mutates. So that's not surprising. And it's going to continue to mutate. And maybe the Delta variant might be a little bit more transmittable, transmittable, uh, uh, transmittable so that it transmits a little bit easier. But that's not a game changer. Uh, the key thing which is true for the Delta variant, as well as previous uh, variants, is that while anybody can get infected, there is more than a thousandfold difference in the mortality risk between the old and the young. So for old people, COVID is more dangerous than annual influenza. And therefore, it's very important for all people to get vaccinated. For children, uh, COVID is less dangerous than influenza, and influenza is already not very dangerous for children. So COVID is even less uh, for children. Uh, and the same is true for young adults. It's not a, a serious threat for young adults. So this enormous gradient of more than a thousandfold difference in mortality risk, that is what we should have used from the very beginning to combat this uh, disease by focusing our protection efforts on the old, the high-risk people, uh, and especially those with uh, comorbidities, comorbidities like obesity, while we let young people live their uh, normal lives and have kids go to schools because that's extremely important for children. And these lockdowns have generated enormous collateral public health damage on, uh, for example, uh, cancers, uh, missed cancer screening or treatments, worse cardiovascular disease outcomes. No, people not getting their proper care for diabetes, uh, um, plummeting immuno uh, immunization rates. And uh, I think one of the worst things is the mental health uh, issues that we have now from these lockdowns. So it's a very tragic uh, situation that least lockdown has caused. And that goes against another principle of public health, which is that you don't only focus on one disease like COVID. In public health, you have to look at all diseases. Uh, so... Um, we fail to do that. 
and I think uh, the response to this pandemic, these lockdowns, is the biggest public health fiasco in history. Well, and we had people warning in the beginning, but again, those voices were not heard in the media, which is why I wanted to do this podcast. So just to be clear, the Delta variant is not more deadly. It's more infectious, but it's not more deadly. Is that accurate? Yeah, it might be more infectious, but uh, no, and uh, it's um, uh, and now we have the vaccine also. So all uh, uh, people, if they have the vaccine, they don't need to be afraid of this. And young people, it's not a dangerous thing for young people. So can you just break down, you know, who is the biggest or who's most at risk to COVID? Can can you just break down in terms of groups of people who's most at risk? I know you mentioned the elderly, but who who does COVID actually pose a threat to? Yeah, so first we have to distinguish between being infected and uh, versus uh, having uh, being hospitalized and dying. So anybody can get infected. That's uh, so that's universal all ages. But for children, often asymptomatic or very they have very mild symptoms. So what matters is not cases here. What matters is uh, a little bit hospitalization, but mostly uh, mortality, people dying from this, and it's it's. The, the the one biggest risk factor that's bigger than anything else is age. Uh, so people above 70 are at higher risk. People uh, in their 60s also have somewhat higher risk. And in their 50s, it's sort of more of a low but not insignificant risk. Uh, so age is by far the biggest risk factor. Then in addition to that, there's issues, other risks like obesity, for example, which might... Uh, might increase your risk by the equivalent of maybe five years or so. Um, uh, so there are other risk factors, but by far the biggest one is age, without any doubt. So, you know, there's been a lot of focus from the media on cases. Is that a mistake? I mean, you had just pointed out that, you know, sort of the, the better barometers and the better markers are things like hospitalizations and deaths. So why is there such a focus on cases? Uh that I don't know. I do know it's a huge mistake. We should not focus on cases. Uh, uh, I mean, we are testing people who are asymptomatic and finding, okay, you're a case, even though they have no symptoms. It doesn't make, uh, make any sense. Uh, if you have had COVID once, uh, and then, uh, or if you have had the vaccines and you do a test, it could still test positive because obviously the, the virus can still enter your body. The immune system doesn't kick in until the virus is in your body, so you can still be positive, have a positive PCR test after having had a previous infection or after a vaccine, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get sick. So the key thing is the vaccines and previous infections, that immunity you have from that, that prevents you from getting seriously ill and from dying. It doesn't prevent you from having the virus in your body. So uh, it's sort of nonsensical to do all this testing of asymptomatic people and counting them as cases. Uh, People only, uh, it's only a case, truly, if you have some kind of symptoms from the disease. So the media is calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Is that accurate or is that just the media sort of pushing fear? Uh, well, it's a pandemic because it is across the whole world. So I, I never heard anybody saying that it's a pandemic among a certain group of people. It's, uh, it's a pandemic because it has spread around the world. Uh, uh, so that's why it's a pandemic. Uh, now, uh, 
if you uh, if those who are at risk from this pandemic right now are the people older people who are not vaccinated those are the people who are at risk of dying and those are the ones that they should get vaccinated but children are not at risk from this and they should uh, uh, they have minuscule risk so they should uh, go along with their normal lives and we saw that uh, last year in uh, 2020 during the first wave in, in uh, Sweden was the only country that kept schools open, all the major uh, Western country that uh, kept schools open through that first wave in the spring of 2020. For all children ages 1 to 15, daycare and school. And among those 1.8 million children, the number of those who died from COVID was exactly zero. And there was only a handful of hospitalizations for children. So, and this was without children wearing masks. They went to school, no mask, no testing, uh, no social distancing. There was more cleaning and uh, sick people uh, were asked to go home. But, uh, uh, so it's very clear that this is not a disease of children and we should never have closed schools. And in Sweden during that time, the teachers had lower risk than the average of other professions because uh, children do not spread the disease very efficiently. So children who get sick usually get it from adults rather than the other way around. So there's no reason to keep schools closed for teachers either, um, except maybe if you're above 60, you can work from home. But other than that, no one. Teachers are more risk from from other teachers, not from the children. So. Well, and Sweden also didn't push mask mandates either, like we did here in the United States. But now you've got Los Angeles County. They're requiring masks again for indoor public settings. The Biden administration is also considering stricter mask guidance. Do masks work? Well, in in hospital settings, there are, of course, situations where it's important to wear a mask. But if we look at it as uh, as a tool to deal with the pandemic, obviously it didn't work because people in the U.S., had wear my mask like eighty or about eighty uh, percent back in the fall last year, and we still had uh, uh, these waves of uh, the pandemic with uh, many deaths. So this reliance on thinking that the mask somehow was going to prevent uh, uh, the the uh, the pandemic uh, that was very misguided. And I think there's two problems with that. One is the belief that masks would work meant that other things that would have worked did not, were not implemented. Uh, and also, if you tell all the people that, okay, a mask will protect you, well, then maybe they go to the supermarket where it's crowded. They are wearing the mask. Everybody else is wearing a mask, and they think that they are protective when, when they are not. So I think a lot of older people... Uh, got exposed to the virus because they thought that masks would protect them, when in fact uh, they did not, obviously, because many of them got sick, even though they were wearing masks and so on. So that's an example where, as, as in public health, you have to be honest with the public. You can't go and say that, well, wear a mask and you'll be safe, when that's really not the case. You still let, if you're an old person and not wearing a mask, and you're wearing a mask, you're still at very high risk of uh, uh, of uh, getting the COVID, which could lead, lead to your death. So uh, it's uh, it's dishonest by public health officials to uh, push these masks and making people think that uh, that's uh, that's how people keep safe when it doesn't keep you safe. Well, in my opinion, it was just for theater to give people the illusion and the appearance that they're keeping themselves safe, even though, as you just laid out, it, it didn't. But 
I, you know, we talked about lockdowns not working. You know, I remember in New York City, they had data back in, I think, May of 2020 showing that 66% of new hospitalizations were people who were staying at home. How early into lockdowns were public health officials aware that they weren't effective and they weren't working? Uh, so already uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, it was clear to both um, both me and many of my colleagues that lockdowns was not going to be able to prevent this uh, pandemic to spread around the world uh, and to uh, spread in the U.S. Uh, and Europe and so on. Uh, so what lockdowns can do is can postpone things a little bit. So to use lockdowns to flatten the curve is not unreasonable because you don't want everybody to get sick at the same time, uh, all going to the hospital same two week period. So flattening the curve to to push it out a little bit uh, is is a reasonable thing to do in public health. But to put in these lockdowns for month after month and over a year is bad public health policy. Uh, it does not uh, prevent any death, and it actually makes things worse because old people who needs to be protected, the longer you drag out the pandemic, the harder it is for the old people to protect themselves. Because at some point they have to go to the dentist or at some point they have to do do things. Uh, So the lockdowns made much more damage on public health than not having lockdowns, both in terms of the COVID, as well as of course of the collateral damage. What we should have done is focus protection where we protect those older people who are at high risk. So with this push to potentially even have vaccinated people wear masks, does that undermine trust in the vaccines if if they're if public health officials are saying you still have to wear a mask after getting vaccinated? Yes. It's a very bad public health message. So why are we seeing, you know, we're seeing cases recently with breakthrough cases with those who have been vaccinated. Why are we seeing that? And is that something to be concerned with from your estimation? Uh, So if there are somebody vaccinated who is the case because they test positive on a PCR, that's irrelevant. And there are going to be many of those. Um, And also people who had COVID. They will be exposed a second time or a third time, and they might have a positive PCR test. But as long as they don't get seriously ill, uh, the immune system is working. So those, those uh, and and uh, so that's the only thing we have to worry about: if people have to be hospitalized or if they die. Now um, there are going to be people in the 80s that have a weakened immune system. The vaccine may not work as well for them as for younger people because of their immune system, because the vaccine is, is not doing anything in itself. The vaccine is actually triggering your own immune system to, to, uh, uh, to, to protect you. So there are older people who have a weakened immune system and where the vaccine might not work, and therefore they might still uh, be seriously ill, even though they are vaccinated. Uh, that's hard to do anything about. Uh, but uh, if you look at uh, people of more normal age who have been vaccinated, the vaccine provides good protection for uh, serious illness and death. For the people who are being hospitalized now, what ages are those individuals? For the people currently you know, being hospitalized and dying from COVID, is it still mostly older people? Or, or what does that age breakdown look like from what we're seeing in hospitals and deaths currently? Um, I haven't seen the actual number for the U.S. I've seen it for some of the other countries like Brazil. And what happens uh, typically is that when 
uh, when you vaccinate the older people, you get less uh, hospitalizations among the old, and therefore the average age of uh, those hospitalized will uh, be lower. But that doesn't mean that the new variants are more dangerous for younger people than before. It just means that we did a good job protecting the older people. Will we ever eradicate COVID? No. Uh, COVID cannot be eradicated. Uh, in the history, uh, uh, throughout history, there's only two uh, diseases that has been eradicated. One is smallpox, and another one is rinderpest. Uh, a disease like COVID uh, cannot be eradicated. Uh, so what's going to happen is the pandemic is going to end. All pandemics end. It ends when we reach herd immunity. Uh, all pandemics end with herd immunity. Uh, and we'll achieve herd immunity with the combination mostly of natural infection, but also of, uh, of with the help of the vaccine. And when that happens, uh, 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 most people will have uh, immunity to it. So when they're exposed, they will not, be seriously ill. Um, they will have maybe a cold or, have, or maybe they'll be asymptomatic. Uh, and then when they're exposed, they sort of, uh, the immune system sort of gets a boost. And then uh, and that helps to keep immunity for, 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 for many years to come. We have children who are born, they are born without immunity. So they are susceptible to the disease. So they will be exposed for the first time, maybe sometime before age five or so. Um, but for them, this is not a dangerous disease. So they may be asymptomatic when they're exposed, so they might have some mild symptoms like a common cold. So that's not a problem. Uh, that's how the other four coronaviruses that we've had for probably at least 100 years are operating uh, uh, in this endemic state. And then we have the old frail people uh, who are in the 80s or 90s with the lower in, uh, where the immune system is weakened. And some of them might die from COVID every year, just like they have done for for uh, hundreds of years from a, a wide variety of viruses. Have we reached herd immunity in the U.S.? In some places, probably yes. And in other pro- places, probably not yet. Uh, so it sort of varies geographically, and uh, that's also true for different countries. So, for example, uh, I don't think uh, Canada has reached herd immunity yet, but uh, certainly uh, uh, some places in the U.S. Uh, I think has. Why do you think there has been a, a lack of acknowledgement or a lack of attention paid to natural immunity? You know, we obviously put the emphasis on vaccines, but there's not a lot of discussion around natural immunity and what that means towards reaching that herd immunity. Well, as a scientist, that's both shocking and stunning. Uh, uh, back uh, two and a half thousand years ago, the Greeks, they knew about natural immunity. Uh, when they had a plague, they made sure that it was those people who already uh, survived it that took care of the sick patients. Uh, so they knew about it. And uh, we knew about it uh, uh, for sure in 2019 and uh, then finally in 2020, it seems like we didn't know about this anymore, which is extremely strange. Um, not, uh, that's how our immune system wor- works. So the, that's how we have survived uh, for millions of years. Uh, so when you get infected uh, and if you survive, which most people do from COVID, then you have immunity for next time. So that the next time uh, 
you don't get uh, sick or you only get mildly, mildly ill. And that's just how our beautiful immune system works, and we should take pride and uh, be happy about that. So this idea that uh, somehow if you have had the vaccine, you're protected, but if you have natural immunity, you're not, that's strange. So a vaccine passport, for example, this should be, uh, we shouldn't have those at all, but if we have them, there should be immunity passport through either vaccination or natural immunity. And... Uh, uh, we shouldn't. People who have already had COVID, they don't need to get the vaccine, and that's just a waste of time because, or a waste of vaccines because there are many people in the world, all the people who have not get gotten the vaccine yet, and are dying because of it. Well, in Brazil, in uh, in Africa, in India, and so on, and it's unethical to use vaccines here in the U.S. for people who already had COVID who are immune when instead they would do actually save lives in other countries. So it's absolutely stunning that uh, this is not accepted, that you get immunity from uh, having had COVID. And we know, we, we know that, I mean, the science, science is clear. There, there's been plenty of, of uh, studies uh, by now that shows that uh, COVID uh, uh, infection gives uh, uh, at least as good as most likely much better protection than the vaccine. We're going to get you more answers about COVID back on the other side. Imagine getting in a hot, stuffy car in the summer. You know how it cools off much faster when you roll down the windows first to get the hot air out? Well, that's exactly how an Easy Breathe basement ventilation system works. Removing all the musty, damp, stagnant air and replacing it with fresher, cleaner, drier air. Take charge of your air with Easy Breathe ventilation and get $250 off today. Ask about DIY kits. Visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com or call 866-822-7328. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So before we get to, because I, I want to have a bunch of questions about vaccines, because you're the guy to talk to. You're an international expert in vaccine safety. But so I am 36 years old. I work out. I'm healthy. What is my risk from COVID? Uh, it's very low. Uh, now, the risk of getting COVID, being infected, uh, there's a risk there, uh, but that's a mild thing. So you may be sick for a few days or so. Or, or, or so. 
So, but your risk of dying from COVID is minuscule. It's much more dangerous for you to. Uh, it's much more dangerous for you to drive back and forth to work. Well, you should. I'm, I'm a bad driver, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that applies to me. I, I'm a very bad driver. Uh, so, sir, right now there are three uh, vaccines under emergency use authorization. We've got Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson. Uh, can you explain the difference between those three? Uh, well, the Pfizer and Moderna are a little bit different than and J&J is a more traditional vaccine. Uh, uh, from, a, from, uh, from a practical point of view, I guess the J&J vaccine uh, is the one dose and Pfizer and Moderna are two doses of vaccines. Uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, in terms of adverse reactions... Uh, they are a little bit different, and that's my area of expertise. So, um, uh, first of all, uh, all any new drug or any new vaccine, we don't know everything about the adverse reactions yet. It takes a few years to figure that out. But for older people, the benefit is great. So even if there's a small risk for an adverse reaction, it's still worth for all people to take these vaccines. For young adults and children, it's very different because uh, there is not at all as clear what the benefit-to-risk ratio is. Uh, But uh, for for the J&J vaccine among uh, uh, younger people uh, below 50, there is a risk for a lot of clots with these vaccines, more in women than in men. And for older people, there is a risk for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, those, but those are very small risks. But uh, the benefit for younger people is also very small in terms of mortality. For uh, uh, for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, there is a, a, a very small risk of uh, myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart, and uh, that's also among uh, most uh, among young people. Uh, and uh, more men than women. So uh, these these are the three things that we know uh, can be caused by these vaccines. We also know that they are uh, rare, not very common. In addition to that, there are mild but common side effects that actually a large proportion have, um, uh, like a fever or uh, some aches and stuff like that. So those are very common but mild. So we don't worry too much about those. But the serious ones are those those three. So we've seen, I think there's uh, 6,200, I think it's about 6,207 deaths from the vaccine. Is that normal or how does that compare to other vaccines? I'm basically, I think there's sort of been like a lack of of transparency and a lot of this information and a, a lack of trusted sources. And so I, I just want to try to get as much transparency and odyssey for the people listening. So how does that compare to, to other vaccines? Uh, so this is a huge mistake that the CDC uh, has done. So CDC has a system called the VAR system, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, where uh, a doctor or a nurse or a patient can report a suspected adverse event to the CDC. Uh, but CDC is publishing these numbers as raw counts that so and so many people died after the vaccine. Uh, but that's very misleading because some of those deaths died because they would have died no matter what. had nothing to do with the vaccine. Um, so uh, if you... Uh, uh, 
if you go, uh, uh, if you eat, uh, let's say you eat some avocado, well, some people are going to die within one week of eating avocado. It has nothing to do with avocado. So just the fact that there are some people who died uh, a week or so after getting the vaccine is, uh, is expected. So uh, whether it's by stroke or heart attack or something else. So uh, the question is, are there more people who die after getting the vaccine compared to what you would expect by chance, considering the age uh, and health status of those people who got the vaccine? So when the CDC reports these various numbers, they just report the raw counts of how many people died after the vaccine, but they don't report, they don't do, they don't, they typically don't report uh, what you uh, what you would expect by chance. So they don't put it in the proper context. And then some people just see these uh, raw counts of, of deaths and think that they're due to the vaccine. But most of them are not due to the vaccine. But there has not been a proper study by the CDC to figure out how many of those, uh, how those number of deaths compared to what you would expect by chance if uh, if there were if they have people died in a normal uh, uh, in, with a normal risk of not getting the vaccine, so I think uh, CDC has, yeah so CDC has really messed up by reporting these raw numbers from the VAR system without putting them in proper context. What would be the better way then to accurately capture? you know, real COVID or real deaths from the vaccine then? Is there a better way that we should be going about it? Or, or how do you accurately capture that so the public knows? Yeah, so the best way to do it is to get uh, um, proper health data from uh, the uh, insurance claims or electronic health records or, uh, or a vaccine registries to see first who got the vaccine and when. And then you look at... Uh, uh, both insurance claims data and uh, 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 death records to see how many died uh, within a certain number of weeks after the vaccine, as well as how many people died uh, among those who did not get the vaccine. And then you compare those numbers. And if if you uh, if if the expected was will you expect to see a hundred based on the the sort of the baseline risk and you see 110 deaths, that's not really an issue because that could just be by chance that you happen to see 10 more than you expected. On the other hand, if you see 200 instead of 100, then that's not due to chance, so then that's due to the vaccine. So uh, that's one way to look at these, uh, uh, these data uh, to, to find out uh, uh, the risk of vaccines. Now, it's not completely trivial, it's fairly easy to do among younger people. It is difficult to do among people in the 80s or 90s or, or even 70s because they might be, some people might be very frail and maybe they are more likely to be vaccinated and therefore it's hard to sort of expect to calculate what the expected counts are. But at least we have to try as best as we can. And uh, if uh, the fact that CDC it's just putting out these raw number counts from the VAR system, I think, uh, is not good uh, to do that without putting them in context. And I think that is leading to a lot of vaccine hesitancy because uh, uh, people see these large numbers uh, without uh, uh, realizing what they mean. 
Could that same a similar logic then be applied to the way we count COVID deaths? Because I, I know there's been concerned raised that we're not accurately capturing COVID deaths. For instance, if you go into the hospital with appendicitis, it ruptures or something, you die from that. But then you happen to have COVID. Is it being counted as a COVID death? So is there a similar logic applied to maybe not counting COVID deaths accurately as a country, or, or is that something you're concerned with? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's another way, another situation, uh, instance where CDC has dropped the ball. Um, that's very unfortunate. Uh, for example, there have been, and you're right, because the, the question is, do you die from COVID uh, or do you die with COVID? And for example, there are uh, a little over 300 uh, uh, reported COVID deaths uh, in the U.S. among children. So that's not that many. So uh, CDC has, uh, uh, I think, about 20,000 employees. So it would be easy for them to go through every death certificate and medical records to see how many of these were actually caused by COVID versus how many of these children died with COVID. And I'm sure that there are some who died from it and some who died with it, but we don't know what that number is. And knowing that numbers has uh, a lot of importance for determining whether children should be vaccinated or not. So it's very important to have that information, but CDC dropped the ball on it uh, and, and because it's their responsibility to ensure that this kind of information is available to make uh, uh, appropriate policy decisions. And this is something that Dr. Uh, Martin McCarry at John Hopkins University has sort of been uh, stressing and he wrote a very good op-ed about that in the Wall Street Journal uh, about a week or two ago. Oh, yes, he's great. Um, I, I'm a big fan of his as well. In, you know, there are a handful of scientists and doctors that I really respect in all this because I feel like they've been honest with us. You're one of them. And so is Dr. Marty McCarry, McCary, Scott Atlas, uh, Dr. Ian Edies. Um, it's, a, it's a small list for me. And, and also Dr. Uh, Jay Batachera. Bataceria as well. Um, but so I, I wanted to ask you as well. So obviously, you know, we've seen, well, first of all, why why hasn't the CDC done, as you just explained, that they could do in getting us more accuracy on people dying from COVID as opposed to with COVID? Why hasn't that happened if they have the capability to do it? Uh, that's a very good question. I know that there has been uh, 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 proposals to do uh, uh, those kind of things. And uh, I think there was one proposal that the NHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, they killed it sometime in February. So it was sort of on its way to be launched, but then uh, it uh, they, they stopped it. And I don't know why they don't do this, because to me, this is one of the obvious things to do during a pandemic, to get the information. You, uh, you find out uh, how many people... Uh, actually died from this disease. Uh, just like you also should do surveys of seroprevalence, for example, to find out how many people uh, have the immunity. That's also something that hasn't been done sufficiently. There has been some in the U.S., including the, the earlier one in Santa Clara County that uh, John Yanidis and Jay Bhattacharya uh, did with colleagues, which was very important. Um, but, <clears throat> but there should be sort of large-scale uh, surveys like that done by the CDC. And... Uh, uh, yeah, I'm very surprised with how CDC has uh, uh, operated during this uh, uh, pandemic. And it's not because there's a lack of good people at CDC. 
there's some excellent, excellent scientists working at CDC. Uh, so uh, that's not the reason. Uh, there's some other reason. Interesting. And, and do you know why it, you said HHS had killed that? Do you know why? Do you happen to know? I have no idea. No. Okay. So right now, the vaccines are still under emergency use authorization. Uh, we've seen the approval process uh, with these vaccines much faster, much quicker than normal. Does that speediness present challenges or raise any concerns for you? Uh, it does provide challenges. And of course, there are some concerns with it. At the, on the other hand, I think it was the right approach because uh, it was very important to get these vaccines to the older, high-risk people as soon as possible. So it was a right decision to approve these vaccines for older people as soon as, as possible. Uh, so I think in the emergency use operation was the right thing to do. Why they're doing it for uh, uh, children, I have no idea. That doesn't make any sense to me. But see, I guess where my concern comes in is I, I agree with you and totally see the point in wanting to get the vaccine to market, particularly for those high-risk people that we've been discussing this entire time, the elderly where potential risks of vaccine are probably less than risks of getting COVID and dying from it. But where I have concern is now we have politicians and public health officials talking about trying to mandate vaccines or colleges saying, you know, young adults, teenagers cannot go back to school or young adults cannot go back to school unless they are vaccinated. So now we have this push and mandate looming for vaccinations when we do have a vaccine that has been moved through uh, very quickly. So that is where my concern comes in. So I, I am with you on getting it to the market. I am against and concerned about now the push for something that hasn't been FDA approved and has been moving through much more quickly than normal. Yeah, and I think uh, for universities to mandate uh, vaccines is uh, both ill-advised, it goes against public health uh, principles, and it's unethical for, 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 for a few different reasons. One is that uh, it's also mandated for people who have natural immunity. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, they already are immune. Why waste vaccines on them? Um, also, why should you uh, vaccinate young uh, uh, college students here in the U.S. Uh, who are 20 years old, who has minuscule risk from this virus in terms of mortality and serious illness, while at the same time there are older people in Latin America, in uh, Africa, in Asia, who do not have access to these vaccines and who are dying because they don't have the vaccine. So for universities to mandate that is highly unethical. Um, it deprives uh, uh, all the people who need the vaccine from the vaccine. And not to count uh, natural, natural in, in, uh, immunity from uh, natural disease of COVID, that goes against uh, basic science. So universities should be uh, institutions of scientific enlightenment. So to not, uh, uh, to not count and not... Uh, they consider that people who have COVID already are immune and do not need a vaccine. That's sort of very strange that universities would do that. Uh, and uh, I have no explanation why they're doing that. It's also discriminatory to uh, uh, working class people because with the lockdowns that did protect uh, uh, the laptop class of professionals, uh, journalists like you, scientists like me, attorneys, bankers, uh, and so on, who could work from home. 
while the working class had to work to uh, provide food and uh, electricity and uh, garbage collection and all those things that we all need. So they were exposed, whether they were young or old, and many of the old died. But then to say that, okay, first we exposed you to the disease while we protected ourselves, and now we have to also expose you to the vaccine, even though you're already immune, including those uh, small uh, um, risk for adverse reactions, that's, uh, that's also immoral, I think, unethical for universities to do that. So it's very clear that they don't care about uh, the whole population. And that's not a principle of public health. You cannot, public health is about everybody in society, uh, uh, rich and poor, left and right. Well, my challenge is as well, I mean, you know, we talked about obviously college age students or children, you know, COVID not being a threat to them. But you, you even said earlier, me at 36 years old, healthy, if, if my chance of dying from COVID is minuscule, why would I get vaccinated when it's not FDA approved? And there's also, you know, been some questions raised about what it does to a woman's menstrual cycle, uh, concerns that haven't been addressed. You know, right now they're studying for pregnant women, which, you know, I am not, but there are also questions raised about fertility, things of that nature. So wh- why subject yourself to a vaccine if your risk from death is minuscule? Yeah, so you should be allowed to make that decision yourself. There should be no mandates. And actually, when when doing these vaccine mandates or vaccine passports, that's actually increasing vaccine skepticism in society. So uh, those of us who work with vaccines and we work with vaccines for a long time, we have spent many decades to to work hard to uh, give confidence in vaccines in society because vaccines are important for measles and uh, and so on. Uh, but there's this little group of uh, so-called anti-vaxxers, uh, but they haven't really, they have been not been successful in uh, in diminishing the overall trust and confidence in vaccines. But what these people who are not pushing vaccine passports and vaccine mandates are doing, they are succeeding where the anti-vaxxers failed. They're succeeding in showing a lot of distrust in vaccines uh, among the general population. And that uh, worries me, uh, not just for COVID, but for, for other types of vaccines. But, uh, so that, uh, that would be very tragic. So uh, what they're doing by, by advocating vaccine passports and vaccine mandates are very counterproductive. It goes against another uh, principle of public health is that public health is built on trust. Um, for people, for the, yes, for the public to trust public health, you have to be honest, but also public health has to trust people to make uh, sensible decisions themselves. But I also I, I think some of the characterizations that are being made about people who have questions about the vaccines is unfair. For instance, I even posed on my Twitter that I was going to be interviewing someone. I hadn't mentioned your name yet, but I just said I was going to be interviewing something. What questions do you have about the vaccines? And the questions I got back from people were better than the questions I'm hearing uh, anchors and reporters on TV asking or I'm seeing and being asked in the media. So you have people with real legitimate questions, you know, even as I mentioned earlier, raising the point that we have a vaccine going through the approval process faster than we've ever seen before. It is not yet FDA approved. Uh, There are still concerns about potential risks to children or to other people. We don't know what the long term impacts are. So I think people aren't just hesitant to vaccines. I actually think they're being really logical and taking a look at their risk assessment or someone as for my age saying, you know, hey, look, 
I'm not at risk of dying for COVID. So I, I think I'm just going to wait and, and, you know, and, and see what pans out with the approval process and also potentially what the longer term impacts are of it. So I, I don't think it's people being reckless. I think it's actually people just exercising common sense and, and looking at their own uh, individual risk profile. I agree with you 100 percent. And I think it's great that people are asking those questions and they should ask those questions. And that's uh, that's very good. And uh, the the the. The failure is not asking those questions. Those questions should be asked. And as a scientist, I ask those questions about vaccines all the time. And uh, uh, it's, it's good when the public also do that, and especially in a situation like this, where the problem is is when public health officials dismiss those questions and try to uh, paint such people as uh, irresponsible or anti-science or anti-vaccine because they are neither of those three things. So, um, so keep asking, I think people should keep asking those kind of questions. That's the right thing to do. Well, I appreciate that. And I've been saying I'm not for the vaccine. I'm not against it. I'm just for common sense because not everyone is at risk. You know, for instance, my parents, my dad is very high risk. He got the vaccine. I supported him in doing that because if he got COVID, he probably would end up in the hospital and potentially die. So it's it's just being for common sense and looking at each individual and making that right decision. You know, so I wanted to ask you, you know, we're in agreement uh, about, you know, needing to get the vaccine out there under emergency use authorization. So people like my dad or people that are high risk have the ability to get the vaccine uh, when the risk of COVID probably outweighs the risk of the vaccine. But why now is there such a rush to get full FDA approval? If, if we already have it to market, if it's already widely available to those who want it, why not take the time? with the full FDA approval process, why does that aspect need to be rushed? You know, people are talking about August or or later, uh, you know, later, you know, in the next couple of months. Why rush that process now? Uh, I don't think there's any urgent public health reasons to do that. Uh, I assume that the pharmaceutical companies probably have some commercial reasons to do it, maybe, but uh, I don't know exactly what they're thinking is on this matter. But uh, from a public health perspective, I don't think there's any urgency to do that. So I've got a lot of friends uh, who have reached out who are pregnant, uh, who are basically trying to weigh, you know, look, is, is you know, which we know that uh, preg- or vaccines for pregnant women is something that is currently being studied. So there's a lot of women that are trying to determine, is it more dangerous to me as a pregnant woman to get COVID or is it more dangerous for me to take a gamble with the vaccine? Uh, you know, what would your recommendation be for these women that are sort of in this difficult decision deciding what the best path is for them? So I don't want to give any specific recommendations on that, uh, except they should avoid the uh, J&J vaccine because of the blood clots, I would say. Uh, but it takes longer time to find out the risk profile and the benefit risk profile for pregnant women because it's a smaller group. Um, so, uh, but obviously if you're pregnant, you're below 45. So, um, uh, you're not in the high risk group for COVID if you're pregnant. And, and I am not just in case my parents are listening. These are my girlfriends reaching out to me that wanted me to, to ask this question. You know, there's also been questions raised. I've had girlfriends reach out about questions over fertility. We've seen, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence of it messing with women's menstrual cycles and, you know, questions raised about that. Uh, are those are there concerns there for you, or, or how do we get to the bottom of that? Uh, those are things that uh, we should uh, uh, study more thoroughly, but uh, I haven't seen the definite answer to those questions yet. 
but it's certainly something that we should investigate to find out about. And and this is uh, this is sort of very natural because we've had the vaccine for less than a year, so it's natural that there are many questions that we do not yet know the answer to uh, about the the adverse reactions to the vaccines. Which again is why we you know we shouldn't see these mandates when there are so many questions. You know we sh- we shouldn't be pushing people to get something when there there's still lingering questions out there. Are there concerns about the long term? effects of the vaccines or or what are those concerns? Do you have those concerns? You know, this is your business. You're an expert in this. Uh, What would you say about that? Uh, So if you look at other vaccines, most adverse reactions are uh, uh, occur fairly soon after vaccination within a few months. Most most actually within a a couple, two or three weeks, but uh, uh, mostly within a a few months, but uh, at the same time, it's much harder to look uh, to study adverse reactions uh, that happens uh, two or three or four or, or, or so many years after vaccination. So uh, um, we know much less about it. But in terms of vaccines in general, uh, those are not major concerns that we have about vaccines. Most uh, most of our concerns about vaccines are things that happen much sooner after vaccination. Obviously, for COVID vaccines. Uh, it has been around for less than a year. Um, I guess uh, uh, almost a year, if you include those who got it in the clinical trials. So we don't really. So there's obviously no data beyond the year. So uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are mRNA. The Johnson and Johnson is not. Can you explain the distinction between that, and is that important, or, or what do people need to know about that? So the Pfizer and Moderna are uh, are a more new. Uh, ways of uh, uh, of uh, constructing uh, vaccines, uh, the J and J vaccines, uh, as well as AstraZeneca vaccines, that are done more traditional ways. But I'm not the best person to actually give a uh, intelligent uh, uh, or uh, 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 to explain this in a good manner uh, uh, because I'm not a virologist. I'm an epidemiologist. Uh, so my expertise is, is more on the population-based things rather than the actual uh, mechanics uh, of the biology and the vaccines. Well, I, I respect that. I appreciate your honesty. And that's you know what I want for this podcast is just to have a real you know authentic and fact-based conversation about this because I, I feel like a lot of information isn't out there. And I had so many people reach out with questions, which I, I really think is a sad reflection of both their media as well as public health officials getting, you know, real information out there, good, the bad, all of it, just so people can make informed decisions. You know, I wanted to ask you, why is there such an emphasis on vaccines when there are also effective therapeutics and antiviral drugs on the market? Uh, So if we look at uh, the scientific community, uh, getting the vaccine so quickly has been an enormous success. And one of the few bright spots of this pandemic when it comes to treatments, uh, it has been uh, a, a, a disaster, I would say, because when you have a pandemic, you quickly want to know what drugs work and what drugs not, do not work. And you want to have strong scientific evidence either way. If you have a drug that works, you have to have strong evidence that it does work. If, you, if it doesn't work, you want to have strong evidence that it doesn't work. So what the NIH... Uh, National Institute of Health should have done, and specifically the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, is to quickly fund the studies 
for different treatments using existing drugs that, that could potentially work for COVID. And to do it both in a setting where they're already hospitalized, as well as in a setting where people uh, just start to, in an early stage, where they just start to have symptoms. But those, uh, those randomized clinical trials of, of treatments, they were never launched. And you can't blame the scientists because scientists write grants and then they are reviewed and it takes a year before the project starts. And that works fine under normal circumstances. But in the pandemic, you can't wait like that. So in a pandemic, is the responsibility of NIH and NIID, uh, which is directed by Anthony Fauci, to, to quickly uh, launch these, to fund and launch these uh, uh, studies to look at the efficacy of different treatments. And that was never done. And that's why we have had so much discussions for a year and a half now about does this treatment work, does it not work? There is some indication that it might, there's some indication that it might not. But uh, there was never done the really strong studies, which are randomized, uh, uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled uh, studies to look at the efficacy of these drugs for COVID. So um, that that's a huge failure of the uh, of the federal government not uh, uh, not launching these uh, uh, evaluations with different potential treatments. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and I'll get you more answers about COVID on the other side. Win the battle of your musty, damp basement with an Easy Breathe ventilation system. Take charge of your indoor air. It's easy with basement ventilation to remove musty odors, pollutants, allergens, and airborne particles by 85%. An Easy Breathe ventilation system creates air exchanges for cleaner, fresher, healthy indoor air. And right now, get $250 off your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. Call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com today. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So I, I want to get to sort of the lack of dissenting opinions or sort of the groupthink in, in the medical and, and science fields and, and also as the media. But before I do, 
I, I, I'm trying to make this, and I, I so appreciate your time, sir, because I'm trying to make this as comprehensive as possible so that people listening can walk away having knowledge and information that they need to go out and make the right decisions for themselves and for their families. Is there anything that I have missed in my questions to you about either vaccines, lockdowns, or, or anything of that nature that you think people should hear or that is important to, to get out there that might not be uh, you know, making its way through the media or, or places where people are getting information? Well, there's one more thing because we talk so much about vaccines and, uh, and treatments and, and, and uh, masks and so on. But one very important thing is that people to live their normal lives. So I have an 18-year-old son, uh, and I was not worried about him getting COVID because he, he, he would survive it. He is that age. But I was very worried about his mental health. So I was pushing him and urging him to go out and play basketball with his friends, hang out with them, and doing all those things because the schools were sort of not operating normally. But he's, he's, he, he still need that social contact. So it's very important, I think, that we encourage uh, that both in children and adults, uh, uh, that we encourage the arts and the culture because that's an important part of uh, our, our life and our mental health. Uh, and that we are outdoors and we exercise a lot. Exercise is very good. We know that obesity is one of the risk factors for um, for COVID. So if there's any time you're going to start exercise, this is the best time to do that. Uh, and be out in the sun is good. So to living a normal life like that is important for public health. And it's both the physical health and the mental health. So I think that's something that I think is important uh, public health message to stress that people do those things. Well, and that's a great point. And you had referenced this at the top of the show too, of sort of the the total impact of COVID, but we didn't dig into it, uh, you know, super thoroughly. But what what do you think? I mean, we're seeing you know opioid uh, overdoses, you know, higher rates of alcoholism. You know, I believe we have a higher percentage of people unwell, maybe ever before in history, mentally unwell. You know, what when will we have sort of an accurate capture or an accurate picture? of just the total damage that the lockdowns had on society. And what do you think that'll look like? Uh, so it will take years, maybe 10 years, because some of these, uh, like opioid things, for example, that could be um, many of those are, are immediate effects. But if you look at cancer, for example, we had less cancers uh, uh, in 2020, but that's not because there's less cancer. It's just because they're not being diagnosed. And if they're not diagnosed, they're not treated. And some of those that are diagnosed are still not treated because of the lockdowns. But that's not really resulting in deaths in 2020 or 21. So maybe somebody didn't get their, uh, maybe women didn't get their pap smear screening. And therefore now they're going to die three or four years from now instead of living another 15 to 20 years. So these uh, collateral public health damage from the lockdowns is something that we're going to have to live with and die with for many, many years to come. And the tally of the negative uh, effects of global damage will not be clear until uh, at least 10 years from now. Uh, but on some things, uh, some things it will be sort of obvious, it's already obvious. Uh, cardiovascular disease, for example, and mental health is already obvious that that's, uh, that that's uh, an issue. But other things like cancer or uh, the consequences of uh, Children not getting a proper education this past year, those are things that uh, are much more long term. And that's another principle of public health. In public health, you cannot only look at the short term with the diseases that are right now. You have to look at the long term. What happens to public health 
five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Well, I think that's a you know great point. And, and you know, as we have politicians and public health officials, you know, raising the possibility of masks again or, you know, raising the possibility of lockdowns, what would your recommendation be to public health officials on the path forward for where we are now and where we should go as a country in uh, addressing COVID? Uh, we should open up and we should live normal lives. Uh, if somebody is sick or have, uh, have some symptoms, they should stay home. Uh, that's a very wise thing, whether it's COVID or something else. But uh, and, and we should uh, try to take care of each other because we're all going through a difficult times. So uh, it's not enough that uh, counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists help out with the mental health issues. I think we have to do it uh, within our families, with friends, with neighbors, uh, with strangers to all help each other to sort of recover from uh, um, uh, this uh, 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 stress and and trauma that these lockdowns have caused. So uh, uh, other than that, uh, if uh, older people who have not yet been vaccinated uh, should get vaccinated and uh, as public health uh, uh, scientists, officials, uh, it's important to reach uh, Older people who are more marginalized, maybe less affluent, uh, to make sure that they also have opportunity to get the vaccines. It's always harder to reach them. And uh, um, until if people haven't been vaccinated yet, the older people who haven't been vaccinated yet, they have to be careful with uh, crowded places and so on. Uh, but uh, uh, I think that's uh, the way forward. And we should sort of be, 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 uh, be glad that... Uh, the mortality is now down. There are still cases, but uh, as long as mortality is down, that's what's important. And uh, uh, try to get back to uh, the old normal as soon as we can. And is there a good place for people to go and get solid information on all of this outside of my podcast, obviously? <laughs> uh, yeah. So one place uh, to look at the collateral damage from the from the from uh, from this uh, lockdowns is uh, a website called. Uh, Collateral Global, uh, where it sort of collects information about uh, uh, research studies of what has been the consequence on cancer, what has been the consequences on diabetes, what has been the consequences on education, and so on. So to read both uh, those research studies as well as uh, uh, newspaper articles about those things. So that's one place to look at for uh, for the collateral uh, damage of these lockdowns. You know, and we've seen. Uh sort of like censorship and this desire to shut down, you know, dissenting opinions. How damaging do you think that group think has been in or response to all of this? Uh, I think that's very damaging, uh, both for the pandemic and our response to the pandemic. I think uh, by not having an open uh, debate and discussion about uh, the strategy to the pandemic, we have ended up with something that was certainly suboptimal leading to more death than was necessary. So I think it's very dangerous for pandemic not to have this open discussion about among, both both among scientists, but also in, in media. Uh, but it also have, I think, much more dire consequences for science in general and in the long term. Uh, I think there are good reasons now for a lot of people not to trust public health and not to trust scientific community. And that is something that's going to take a long time to rebuild that trust. Uh, so that's a huge uh, task 
that uh, we have both as public health scientists and as uh, uh, general scientists uh, to try to rebuild that trust uh, because uh, I fully understand that people will not trust, uh, have lost trust in public health and science during this pandemic. And I, I think there's good reasons to lose that trust. And in the scientific community, it's been very problematic because when I, uh, in, uh, in March of 2020, when Ian Edith wrote his uh, piece in Stat News, uh, I tried to publish things also, and other days as well, uh, with similar sort of questions about the lockdowns and that we needed to do a focus protection. And uh, it was impossible for me to publish in the U.S., both in the medical literature and in uh, and in the more popular uh, media, uh, regular media. And uh, there were other uh, colleagues of mine who had similar experience. So I'm a native of Sweden, so I was able to publish in the major daily newspapers in Sweden, but uh, I was not able to publish at the time in the U.S. And it was not until uh, October uh after we wrote the Great Brighton Declaration together with uh, Dr. Jay Bharacharya at Stanford and Dr. Sumita Gupta at Oxford, who is, in my view, the uh, preeminent infectious disease technologist in the world, where we argue for focus protections. But only after that, that uh, the, the mainstream media uh, could not ignore us. And uh, we sort of got a foothold into, uh, into that. But uh, it's very strange that... Uh, this uh, silencing and this censoring that has also occurred during this pandemic is very damaging and very scary, actually. Well, and, and I know, you know, you don't have to get into it, but, I, you know, I know there's been great pushback as well. And, uh, you know, for the handful of you guys who have been honest and trying to get this information out there. But I want to thank you for persevering and pushing through, because I, I can tell you, even reading that op-ed from Dr. Ian Edies back in March of 2020, completely reshaped the way I looked at COVID because I used to work in polling. So, you know, I understand data to a certain degree. Uh, and so what he was saying made so much sense that or the fatality rate that we were looking at was totally skewed because we weren't capturing all of the cases. So, of course, the fatality rate would be significantly higher than it actually was uh, because all the numbers were getting skewed. So that made perfect sense to me. But I, I pushed, I tried to get his voice out there. I wrote an op-ed with his name in it. I tried to get the White House on record uh, to say that we needed a rec- to get a good representative sample and to get better data. Uh, but, you know, I, I so I just, I commend you. I commend the handful of other individuals who really fought to get the truth out there because I know that it was a professional risk and you guys took some, you know, bullets coming in your direction. But uh, I mean, you guys are heroes, in my opinion. I, I, I'm not even, you know, kidding with that. I, I deeply respect what you have done in getting the truth out there and just being honest with the public. Well, in my view, I don't have a better choice because if I'm going to be a scientist, I have to be, be honest about the science. That's not a question. Uh, I so so I want to commend you and many others in in your uh, in your situation, uh, journalists, and also people, just regular uh, regular people who have been pushing this because you and they, they had a choice, actually. I didn't really have a choice. I had to speak up because I'm a, I, I've been working with uh, infectious disease operators for a couple of decades. But you had a choice, uh, and you did the right choice, and I really appreciate that, uh, but what you did and uh, what many people in the public have done uh, to speaking up and uh, writing writing things and uh, using social media or talking to neighbors and so on. But uh, that's been extremely important. So uh, I want to thank all of you. 
Thank you, sir. And my objective for this podcast was just to be as comprehensive as possible so people could go get real truth from someone who is an expert in all of this, who has been honest. And I think we accomplished that goal. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This was an honor and I learned so much and I so appreciate your voice and your time. Thank you, sir. Uh, Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for asking such uh, important and good questions. I really appreciate that. I want to thank Dr. Martin Kuldorf again for such an important interview. And I want to thank you guys at home for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at at Lisa Marie Booth. And I want to thank our team, producer John Cassio, writer Aaron Kliegman, researcher Isabel McMahon, and executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, all part of the Gingrich 360 network and team. Win the battle of your musty, damp basement with an easy-breathe ventilation system. Take charge of your indoor air. It's easy with basement ventilation to remove musty odors, pollutants, allergens, and airborne particles by 85%. An easy-breathe ventilation system creates air exchanges for cleaner, fresher, healthy indoor air. And right now, get $250 off your own easy-breathe ventilation system. Call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com today. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and mrn or nascar.com martinsville talladega the chicago street course we have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win photo finishes ryan blaney will win the voice of nascar the motor racing network this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.